Welcome to this week's episode of Questions You Didn't Ask. We are so excited to collaborate with the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA to explore advancing accurate representation and research. We are speaking with Dr. Carla Rodriguez-Watson, Dr. Nadine Barrett, and Dr. Alicia Clary to learn more about how diversity and equity in research is vital to effective cures and how it leads to better patient advocacy and health outcomes. Let's continue the conversation. I know that we have more questions about ethics, trust, transparency. But one of the things that I want to get into before we jump into um, our next section is to dive a little bit more into some solutions, some different things that healthcare systems or partners and stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem have done to help ensure and address the issues of ethics and research. Nadine, I'll turn to you and ask you to tell us some about the work that you're doing in this space. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you. And I know that there are plenty of solutions that many have done across the country in this area for certain, but I also think that there are some things that we can do to continue to build out our understanding of where things lie in the context, again, of trust and trustworthiness, transparency, accountability, et cetera. And so at Duke, we actually have started a program called Project Interest. We've built a lot of relationships with our community partners. I'm a big advocate that every time we do research, it needs to be mutually beneficial with our community partners. So every time I'm doing a research project, I may be asking questions or the team may be asking questions about a particular topic, whether it be cancer, kidney disease, et cetera. And in all of those opportunities, I work together with our partners to find out what questions do they need to ask. And I actually include that in my surveys with them. And so we do the survey together and they actually have access to that full data in that space. Now, those questions may be related to what we're doing and some of it may not be related to what we're doing, but things that are important for them to continue to build their own capacity as community-based organizations and partners. So that's just a small example of really going in, asking, well, what are the things that keep you up at night and how do we work together in this particular area where we align our interests and priorities, but also recognize that there's some capacity support there that can happen as well. So I think that, that that's been like my motto is like, what are the things that's keeping you up at night when I speak with community colleagues around that? But this particular program that we're doing at Duke right now, it's called Project Interest. I'm really thrilled about it because it's actually supported by the entire Duke senior leadership. I am the I am leading uh, leading it through the center, of course, and through the CTSI. And a key part of this work is really around, as I said before, how do we become more trustworthy? And part of that is knowing how trustworthy we already are, right? It's like you can't build your trustworthiness in, in research and in healthcare without first recognizing where we are. And the mm-hmm. only people that are probably the best uh, ones that can assess that are really our communities, our patients, mm-hmm. our community-based partners, and even our employees to a great mm-hmm. extent as well. And so we actually embarked upon this work where first we wanted to do a survey. That survey, we wanted to kind of, we worked together with a large group of community partners. In fact, almost 800 community partners informed what ended up being the final survey around trustworthiness of Duke Healthcare and research. We then worked together with our community partners. And again, it's community, patients, 
employees and our community-based organizations in our catchment area wow. region. And, and so we, we, we did the surveys asking all kinds of questions from trustworthiness around racism, experiences of discrimination, inequities not being valued, not being heard, not being listened to. And what do people see as the driver of that? Just as the point was highlighted earlier by Carla, it asked both questions in terms of race, ethnicity, uh, sex and gender minority uh, categories as well. But it also asked questions specific to intersectionality. So we can actually mm. really look at both Black women compared to mm -hmm. white women, Latino, Latinx, Latinas, et cetera. So it's allowing us to really acknowledge the intersectionalities there, but also mm -hmm. the intersectionalities of socioeconomic status, rural regions, whether it be rural or urban. But as a result of that, we actually did the survey and we just closed it out not too long ago, but in eight weeks, with the first being primarily the first four weeks, we received over 6,600 respondents. So the respondents actually represent their patient demographics. And in some cases, it's actually oversampled, uh, which we did not intentionally do that, but it actually happened that way anyway, which is phenomenal. And so now we have all these data. And now our community members, as our next step, our communities that I just described, will be actually interpreting the outcomes for us. And so they'll see the findings and tell us what does it mean to them. And what do they see as the solutions for that? What are the experiences that, they, that should be happening, et cetera? And the entire city leadership of Duke is actually working together to get work together with the community. We'll get those solutions, get those ideas, and also have advisory council members that are guiding us through this entire process toward actionable steps for change in our delivery of healthcare and in how we do research so that it can be more trustworthy, transparent, accountable, sharing with our patients what dissemination of results of research is, and also how we're using their data to improve health and health outcomes and address disparities. That's a short version of <laughs> Wow. But the, the community is actually doing through this big project uh, we're doing mm -hmm. around town halls, breakout sessions, and all these town halls and breakout sessions are all co-led by community and researchers wow. and clinicians and the, and the leadership. So it's truly a partnership effort in order for us to change trustworthiness, to become more that, we have mm -hmm. to know and engage the people who are experiencing the, the, the horrible experiences and atrocities that's leading to the lack of trust in our communities that are underserved. Right, right. I think that that's oh. a fantastic example, Nadine. Um, and I think that, you know, what what's really at the forefront of the example that you shared in the program is that you first started with the premise that there is a very real or perceived risk of bias or, or harm mm -hmm. in reporting these data or um, that there may be a risk of bias or harm in reporting these data. And so, you know, the program, as you just described, it really helps to bring that to the forefront, begins to facilitate those conversations and allows the, this partnership approach to addressing some of those fears, you know, really trying to reduce the risk of harm that patients may may suffer from from reporting these data and really drives towards a, a solution and creating an environment where they are safe to report these data. They know why they're reporting these data, what may be done with it and who may have access to it. Absolutely. And those solutions will be multi-level, right? Individual, interpersonal, systemic, and structure, right? So that way we're really kind of addressing these solutions across the gamut. So well said. I agree, Michelle. Wow, this is amazing. Such an awesome, awesome discussion already. I mean, we could go deeper and deeper into this. I heard some mention of community advisory boards and, and how you integrate community into your solutions from the beginning. 
And one of the things that kind of resonates with me before I turn it over to my co-host, Carla, is there's a statement that is common around among people who do this type of work, this health equity research, this type of, you know, effort to make sure that there is accurate representation. And that is those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And so by bringing these people, our people, each other into the fold, we can shape methods and strategies that are effective at advancing accurate representation and research. And just before we move on to the next topic, any thoughts or reflections about this statement about those closest to the problem are closest to the solution? Alicia. Sure. I'm happy to offer my perspectives first. You know, with that statement first, there really is that underlying assumption that advancing accurate representation in research and promoting inclusivity are important. And, you know, assuming that those designing or running the trials agree with that assumption, that statement really does underscore that it is important and empowering to involve communities and individuals who are directly experiencing the challenges that we're trying to address in the process. It really can shape the methods and the strategies that we use to advance representation in research and to design our trials. There really is this emphasis on active engagement with the community. And, and those communities are, are the experts in their lived experiences and their lives and can really help to provide insights into any barriers they face and, and offer solutions that are relevant to their experience. There's also this opportunity to invoke more participatory research methods where community members really are involved in every stage of the research process from identifying the problem to helping to inform study design and data collection, really ensuring that the, the study design and methods are aligned with their experiences and their perspectives. And then, of course, you know, there's this really there's an opportunity to inform data collection and how we go about collecting data, ideally from the community without having the participants need to come to the, the mm -hmm. hospital or the clinic to offer their perspective. That's something that we heard um, really resounding and raised. Why are patients always asked to go to the hospital or to the, the clinic? Why can't the researchers come to them? And then, you know, really just really underscoring this need to empower communities by giving them ownership of the question, the process, the outcomes, the data, and all these initiatives that really pertain to, to their data, their health, their, their well-being, their experiences with medicine, and, and allowing them to take a leadership role in, in the process and really elevating them to the level of co-investigator, co-PI, or, or, or something similar that pays homage to the, the expertise that they are offering to the process. Oh my gosh. Alicia, I love that. I absolutely love that. I, I could not agree more. And I think that that is a huge solution that obviously from race, you, pick, you all learned that, which I think is phenomenal. And it really is. It's true that the community has so much insights to Naisha's question around, around 
the solutions specifically. And I remember I have a um, Bishop Gabi, he's from the River Church here in Durham, a phenomenal man. We've done a lot of surveys and engagement with the community around research. Mm-hmm. And one day he literally asked me, the very thing you just said, Alicia, is aside, Dr. Barrett, we've been doing surveys and focus groups mm-hmm. and all these other great things here. He says, when are you going to bring a clinical trial to our church? You've been talking wow. about them. We all know what they are now. So how are you going to bring a study to us? And so I was like, okay, should we do it? And sure enough, on a Tuesday evening in his midweek service, he opened up the church for us to bring our phlebotomist and our entire research team in to do a study on H. pylori specifically, which causes when you have H. pylori infection, you end up having stomach cancer. And it can be prevented by just simply two rounds of antibiotics. And so it was really incredible. We opened up the church and then we did all, he did all this advertising, like he did it. Him with his team and his health ministry did this whole advertising. Wow. Within two and a half hours, we had 92 people participate in a clinical trial right there at the church. They Amazing. did blood draws. We did urethra breath tests. We did surveys, the whole nine yards. And out of the 92 people, um, 97% were underrepresented groups in research. We've been wow. using that model now in kidney disease, where we now have within an hour, two hours, Latino, um, um, Latino Latinx and Black populations participating in studies in rural communities and in urban. Wow. So you're totally right. It was the community that pushed us to, to go ahead and take take the studies mm. outside of the building and into the community. And now that model has been incredibly effective in, in cancer, in kidney disease, in advanced care planning and end-of-life care and hospice and other areas as well. So that's that's a perfect example. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Nadine. You know, really fantastic to be able to, to to hear from your own words, your approach to this and the success that you've seen from this. Oftentimes, um, people lay the, the burden of not participating in trials on patients mm-hmm. and on people instead of laying it on investigators and, and the clinical trial system. And sometimes it's as simple as asking. Other times it's as simple as going to them and bringing the, the, the study procedures to the places where the patients often go and that are part of their, their regular every day or every week lives. I'm curious, Nadine, Alicia, how do you scale that so that that happens more often? Or are we ready on that trajectory? Is the train moving in that direction? That's a great question. Actually, scaling is always the big challenge, right? It sounds like we can do these kind of programs and projects in our small corners, but then what does that look like on a big picture and scaling up? I'm actually, I I think that we are moving in that direction, uh, Carla. I do think that, you know, it, it, it is a challenge, but part of it requires building the relationships, right? So in this case, the bishop asked me, now I'm doing it with all these other partners, right? Uh, and I think that part of that is because of the relationship, building that trust, building, build, being open and transparent. As I said, we did surveys with the church. They actually got questions answered that they wanted that was important to them that led to them doing their own work and building their own capacity as an organization. I do that now with many others as well. So it's kind of what you all talked about with RAISE to me, to some extent, too, and what we've been doing here at Duke. And even before I came to do is really kind of learning from the community what are the things that works, right? What's the solutions? What are the ways in which we should be engaging in a mean, meaningful, equitable way? And then being able to think about our research teams being trained up to know that, you know what, you can actually do blood chores in the middle of a church. You can do it in the middle of a, a, a community based organization. It doesn't have to happen 
in this specific environment within the clinic setting. And so now we've been training up our research teams to do that. And that's why we're now having more and more studies. So it went from one small study, actually it wasn't small, but one study that we did with Bishop Godby. And now we're doing it across five different disease areas already. And so when we think about scaling it up, it's more about like, how do we disseminate that? When we're doing great things, Carla, you, Alicia, the great things that you're doing, I think things stay in an academic journal, but they actually don't turn into, especially things around community research work, when it's community engagement work, it sits in the journal, but it doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. get replicated at the rate that it should Mm -hmm. and can be more broadly. And I, I, I kind of put the onus on the research enterprise to one value engagement more and not just engagement being informed by community, but truly engagement where we are partnering with the community in all of our systems, activities, and procedures, as opposed to just when we need something or we need a question or we want them to look at a flyer. That is not enough, right? It really needs to be more about how do we change our systems that were not designed in a trustworthy way in the first place to ensure equitable access? How do we engage those who don't have access in this type of work and those experts and colleagues so that we can create the kind of change that we need to see across the board? And, you know, I I would totally echo everything that you said, Nadine, and it was very well said. If I may touch upon this in a a more generalizable way, we we have a model for this in decentralized trials, in virtual and remote trials, and instead, where instead of um, requiring participants to visit the clinic for assessment, for monitoring, and for data collection, we go to them or we leverage technology where we can collect the data remotely. And, you know, there's so many touch points in a trial that may lend itself to community-based enrollment, community-based consent, community-based data collection, community-based monitoring that can be leveraged to, I forgot the word that you used, Carla, to scale something like Nadine has talked about. And of course, you know, there's always this need to demonstrate that you actually can collect robust data via this mechanism. And I'm sure there are several examples of this already. But, you know, what I say next may be a little bit controversial, but I'll go ahead and say it. Funding and incentives. Clinical trials are yes. a major business for healthcare systems. And so is there an opportunity for these churches, for these community organizations, for these community clinics to become more involved in clinical trial and to get funded for their efforts upon upon demonstrating that they can do this as well as some of those larger healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. That's a great, like the example, I think that's great, Alicia, the example from the Compass grants that came out through the NIH earlier this year. That's a great example where the the NIH funding community-based organizations and academic health centers have to be the subcontract to the organization. I I love when they did that because it speaks to your point, right? Kind of what kinds of models where we see the funding going to the organizations to do the work and and partner with academic health centers to be able to make that happen. And really to help develop that clinical trial infrastructure because we know, you know, you need people to do consent. You need data capture and data collection systems that meet all the, the regulations for doing clinical trials. So there's really an opportunity to make these investments into these community-based sites, into these centers, to be able to reach these participants more effectively. 
And I think that this even echoes what I was saying earlier about us being data rich and resource poor. And it's not to say that the healthcare industry is poor. It's not to say that the research industry is poor. It's to say that we have to strategically align our values and remain committed to them in regard to the evidence that is created, right? We are oftentimes, you know, finding that, you know, celebrating these wonderful initiatives, these wonderful research initiatives. But if there's not a long-term to com commitment to continue down that line of inquiry and to be able to look at implementation and dissemination, to look at translational science, in other words, for our audience, to think about how can we now take this re these research findings and implement them into practice. A lot of what Alicia does, evidence to practice. Then also, so that it's not siloed in one particular place. Like, okay, that's wonderful for the people that go to Duke, but what about the people that go to Wake Med or go to UNC Hospital or some other hospital system? So dissemination is looking at how can you then take that evidence and that implementation and make sure that it's disseminated in different settings and amongst different populations. A part of dissemination as well is being able to accurately and adequately adjust and adapt those models and innovate them further to fit a variety of different settings and patient populations. So we really have to think about what is our commitment? Where is our strategic plan? And how long is that strategic plan? We commonly look at models around five to 10 years but when we think about how long it takes to change behavior, human behavior, health behaviors, it's usually a lot longer than that. And especially when you're thinking about, as Carla mentioned, scaling to create systems change, organizational changes, cultural changes, even in regard to what you were sharing, Alicia, about, you know, the organizations and making sure that they have the infrastructure to be able to support this type of work. And yes, this sounds like a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort, but I would probably lend if we had a health economist on the um, on the call today or on the podcast today, I'm sure they would say, well, we're already spending a whole lot of money on dealing with health disparities. We're already um, spending a whole lot of money on de dealing with people who don't have the appropriate care that they need when they need it. So it's just a matter of trying to untangle that web that we find ourselves in and make being committed to finding the solution and continuing to innovate solutions. So that's just my two cents, but I want to turn it back over to Carla. Yeah. Thanks, Nadine. Thank you, Nadine. Thank you, Alicia, for queuing up all this super interesting and important conversation on community-centered clinical trials and how we, how we're able to scale some of the great work that we've been, that you've been both been doing, you know, it brings to mind the importance of when we're talking about intersectionality, these different facets of a person, including, and when they start reporting out their race, ethnicity, their age, in addition to their age, their geographic location, why do you think that these characteristics are hard to collect information on? Why are people reticent to doing that? Do we have the appropriate privacy protections on there? And do we really know what we're going to do with all these data as researchers? 
You know, Carla, I think that there's a, a number of things that come to mind in this. For certain, when we talk about capturing data and people not necessarily feeling comfortable in sharing all their data, I tend to find that, you know, in the race and ethnicity categories, it's not as much as a concern. I tend to see stands to stand up more, more in the SOGI data, people who have to disclose their sex and gender identity. And particularly because of, uh, I know I'm speaking to the choir here, as we all know, um, the challenges associated with that in terms of disclosure and, and potential harms uh, that can come from there. And so when people really want to know how these data are going to be used, I think it becomes, it becomes really important for our teams and our organizations to be able to know how to ensure that the, the frontline or the recruitment team or whomever's doing that conversation are fully prepared and able to know how to manage that conversation. Mm -hmm. I also think that there's opportunities for us to really be even more trans, trans, um, transparent within the context of even consenting people and speaking to people about trials. So one of the things I've learned from our patients, those who are participating in research and those who chose not to, is that they, they often felt like it was more of a transaction conversation, a transaction mm -hmm. versus a mm -hmm. conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And so a transaction, if you're already engaging in a transaction and then you're asking me these very personal questions about myself in being, and to be part of research, then yeah, I think it becomes a problem, right? But if we're in a conversation with someone and we learn and our teams learn how to have a conversation that's truly authentic, understanding where people are and understanding also what we're doing and being transparent about the research, the data, what we're doing with the data and the ultimate mm -hmm. outcomes and impact we plan to have, that requires a more of a conversation where you're seeing that person not as a subject, which is a term we use uh, in research, which is its own problem that I have a, mm -hmm. a concern with, but it's really more focused on the person. It's really focused on this person who is volunteering their time to help us advance science, right? And advance research and ultimately improve health. So I think that it's really critical for us and for teams to learn what that conversation looks like. And yes, honing in on being patient-centered, understanding that uh, we're not looking, our target population are still a group of people who are volunteers that we're engaging with. Oftentimes people who may not necessarily want to even be involved if they could avoid having the disease that they have and that they're working through. Cancer being a great example of that. So I do think that, that, that there's a, an opportunity here locally, nationally, across the board for us to really start thinking about how we engage patients around that space to be able to address these intersectionalities, making sure the team understands diversity, understand what it means to be the experiences and the inequities that exist because of racism, inequities, sexism, homophobia, all of those factors play into how comfortable our teams are in engaging with patients. And our patients are, are very savvy. People know when someone is not being respectful, not valued, yes. not being empathetic. People pick up on those things. And so mm -hmm. I think it really does mean that there's a significant amount of training that needs to happen. And also on the front end with the team, being proactive in knowing how do we engage in a way that we are being intentional in reaching all populations, the intersectionalities of those populations, and knowing how to value and respect them as people and not subjects, as potential collaborators really in research. I mean, we can do research, but we can't do it without those patients. We can't do it. So we need yeah. them. So they're truly our partners. So Carla, I appreciate the question. And I hope that that helps a little bit in moving into that conversation space. Yeah. And I think you said something really important in terms of, you know, where people's sensitivities lie and how comfortable they may be in answering certain questions. And then it becomes the impetus is more on 
the askers to know why are you asking that question? And even beyond research, we're talking about, you know, in yes. in real world, everyday clinical care, why are we asking yes. these questions? And presumably yeah. in a clinical setting, it's because we want to be able to deliver the appropriate care for these different populations. And we hear this all the time, like race and ethnicity, are, are those really capturing the the information we want to know about these different populations so that we can improve whatever it is we're trying to improve. And that's the thing, right? We talked about earlier, being able to be specific about why we were asking that question. Is it is it a question we're truly trying to understand something about access? I think when we think about, you know, our standard office of management and budget, cat racial and ethnic categories, we're kind of, there's driving towards a standard. So not only that the data are interoperable, but so there's there's a somewhat of a responsibility to be able to assess how the population is doing in terms of people that have been either benefit, benefited or disenfranchised by virtue of being of these racial categories and how they were how they were categorized based on race, which is a socio-political construct. But it's Absolutely. being used for so much more, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people, it's like a blunt instrument. Mm -hmm. And and maybe the only instrument, it's an instrument, not the only instrument that we have, but people point, researchers, academics point a lot towards these other more granular social determinants of health. But at the end, at the end of the day, it's important to really understand why are you asking that question? What mm -hmm. part are we trying to get at? Is it a question of access? Is it a question of some kind of genetic allele that tends to correlate with geographic ancestry, which tends to correlate with race and ethnicity? Correlation, not necessarily, you know, a, a complete implicit part of it. But I think this is some of the struggle in when we think about these racial and ethnic categories and how we're presenting that information to people to respond to. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Questions You Didn't Ask. We are so excited to collaborate with the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA to explore advancing accurate representation and research. We're speaking with Dr. Carla Rodriguez Watson, Dr. Nadine Barrett, and Dr. Alicia Clary to learn more about how diversity and equity in research is vital to effective cures and how it leads to better patient advocacy and health outcomes. This is a necessary conversation for providers, patients, well, for all of us. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to come back next week as we continue the conversation on Questions You Didn't Ask.